This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Fortune's Wheel, podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Though full of promise, Roger had a lot left to learn. On this episode, that learning will occur, and we will see exactly how fast a learner Roger was. After failing to secure the city of Messina in northern, northeastern Sicily, the city that would be a firm foothold in Sicily for future Norman expansion, well, Roger would redeem himself, and it won't be in any way you might be thinking. It begs the question of who exactly, precisely, should be called Giscard. <laughs> this is episode 111, and it's entitled Securing Messina. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. It's early springtime, 1061, and hearing rumors of another Norman invasion, the Emir of Palermo decides to act on behalf of Messina, having no doubt heard of their successful harassment of the fleeing Normans months earlier, sending a fleet of ships to attempt to prevent a crossing from Calabria to Sicily. It was a bold move, but it effectively gave Roger de Hauteville, Count of Reggio di Calabria, it gave him pause. Malaterra confirms that Roger stayed on the mainland for for a couple weeks, but it was continuing to build his but he was continuing to build his forces in the meantime. And in May of 1061, Count Roger welcomed his brother, Duke Robert Guiscard, to Reggio, and with him came even more knights and cavalry. Malaterra writes of the blockade, quote, They interrupted the passage for some days, for although our fleet was the more numerous, Theirs was the better furnished, with more powerful ships. Our men had then only Germundi and galleys. The Sicilians, however, had Cati, Galafri, Dromans, and ships of various other types. End quote. Duke Robert Guiscard was peeved about Palermo's meddling in his brother's crossing, but there wasn't much more he could do. It would be, a fool- it would be foolish to cross, period. Roger, it said, pressed Robert to seek divine assistance. Malaterra says, quote, He ordered the army to trust in their priests, receive penance, and all to take communion. He himself and his brother vowed that if the land should be with divine assistance be made subject to them, they would henceforth be even more devoted to God, keeping unswervingly in mind what is written. And since no plan can succeed, which is directed against the Lord, 
and no difficulty cannot be overcome when the Holy Spirit is present as one's helper, they begged God with tearful devotion to be their guide and their strongest governor in all that they intend to do. End quote. Well, you can't argue much with the reasoning, at least from a religious standpoint. The interesting thing here is that, once again, we see where the Christian mind was with regards to Islam. Again, Malaterra writes, no plan can, su- can succeed which is directed against the Lord. Therefore, Malaterra is saying that Islam itself and those who are ruling Sicily under the name of Islam, their quote-unquote plan can simply not succeed, as it is by its nature, by their nature as Muslims, their plans are against God. He's saying that Muslim rule, Islam itself, and its aims are antithetical to God. It's a bold stance, but it's the Christian stance nonetheless of the 11th century. As I've been saying, keep all this in mind heading into the Crusades. The Crusades didn't happen in a vacuum. And Roger had had plenty of time, as we said at the end of the last episode, to reflect upon the previous campaign across northeastern Sicily. He experienced success after success until he found himself marooned with his back to the sea, fearing an enemy surprise attack at any moment. The waves whipped up in a violent frenzy due to the storm relentlessly raining on him and his men. The thing was, Roger was eager to get things going, and sitting there staring at the Palermitan blockade was doing no one any good. There were things to consider, though. We have to remember something very important. The oldest of Roger's knights might very well have been the same young Norman knights who had participated alongside William Ironarm during George Maniaki's campaign in Sicily way back in 1040. I mean, it was only a 20-year gap. My own dad fought in Vietnam, and he served as a supply sergeant during, the, during Operation Desert Storm back in 1990. It's completely feasible that these were many of the same soldiers. Now that said, Roger had to consider the fact that these older soldiers serving under him had valuable first-hand experience dealing with the Saracens across the strait. They knew very well how fiercely the Saracen would defend his homeland and his people and certainly his faith. Also, John Julius Norwich, in his book The Other Conquest, points out that Norman's success in southern Italy over the previous 40 years was largely due to prudence. Quote, Normans, except occasionally in their mercenary days, had never sought a battle that they could not be reasonably certain of winning, nor, since they still depended largely on immigration for their fighting strength, did they ever unnecessarily risk the lives of their men. Twice in the past year, Roger had done both, end quote. So at the time, I mean, Roger was struggling, it's safe to say, but Roger was still young and he was very, very clever and very adaptable. Running headlong into a war with Muslim Sicily without proper planning, consulting with older Normans with firsthand experience under Maniaki's and adequate resource accumulation, well, that would just be foolish without that stuff. Top it off with some, with some whimsical promise by, as Norwich says, quote, an unbalanced and treacherous emir, end quote. And you have a fool's errand that would surely end in failure so large that all future plans for Sicily could and would be scrapped 
But Roger, he was better than all of that. Besides, I can't possibly imagine that his older brother, Duke Robert Giscard, would have failed to point any of that out to him. The Hopeville boys loved each other. But that love came with severity, and it came with resentment, and it came with fierce, fierce competition. Oh, Robert definitely gave his little brother what he thought uh, of how the last expedition ended. <laughs> Just a few thoughts, I'm sure, <laughs> were, were passed between the brothers. I dare say that that conversation was anything but pleasant. But as hopeful boys tended to do, they both moved forward together, even begrudgingly at times. Robert Giscard brought with him a rather large force, as I said. Soldiers, horses, supplies, even a few extra ships to board met him in the harbor in mid-May. On the previous episode, we learned that Robert was forced to return to Apulia because things had exploded a bit there while he was over in Sicily taking Messina. He had no knowledge of the details, but he went nonetheless, picking up another brother, Malger, to help him out, while Roger was tasked with staying in Reggio. When Duke Robert arrived in Apulia, he found his properties raided and ransacked. Do you remember this? This was more than some simple uprising. This was something much larger, actually, happening in the background. After setting up a base of operations and gathering as much reconnaissance as he could, Robert Giscard learned that the uprisings were largely carried out by Lombards in the region, unhappy with their Norman rulers, him particularly. But these Lombards were egged on by outside forces. See, Emperor Constantine X Ducas had heard about the fall of Regio, and well, he wasn't too pleased. But he was Constantine X Ducas, as we know, and as we know, Constantine X hadn't had the first idea about how to run a military properly. So he half-heartedly sent a small fleet to the final holdout of the Eastern Roman Empire on the Italian peninsula that is, the port city of Bari on the Adriatic coast. The Greeks and Lombards ruling Bari immediately sent out folks to stir up trouble throughout Apulia. At first, it was just general, largely harmless unrest. But before Robert had even returned to Sicily, it turned into all-out warfare across the hills and the beautiful uh, farms and orchards of Apulia. The cities of Melfi, were just under two years earlier, Robert was declared Duke, remember? Brindisi and Oria? Well, they were overrun and taken in the name of Constantine X. Byzantine forces let the Lombards wreak havoc inland. But the Byzantines pushed southward into the heel of the boot and effectively captured the entire region. Robert returned to something far worse than what he'd initially heard. But to be fair, due to the speed of travel at the time, the guy tasked with sending word to Robert and Sicily probably left at a time when it was largely harmless. As Robert trekked back home, things changed exponentially. But we can't forget who Constantine X Ducas picked a fight with. Robert Giscard was already, like his older brother William Ironarm, he was already a living legend. And he could be ruthless when his interests were threatened. And I mean ruthless. Indeed, Robert became ruthless. In a matter of weeks, all of Apulia was firmly under his thumb once again, his army bolstered by loyalists, and he had pushed all Lombard resistance to within the walls of Bari itself, 
he set up a garrison at the entrance to the heel of the boot, but ordered them not to move any further south, and under no circumstances allow the Byzantine army down there to head north. During those weeks, Melfi, Brindisi, Oria, among countless other towns and villages were reclaimed as his. Norman nobility was restored and supported, and he must have smiled ear to ear watching those pesky Lombards stuck behind Byrie's walls, unable to do anything while he was around. No one knows the devastation that was wreaked upon Lombard lands within Apulia, but knowing the Normans, and knowing the Hopeville method of rule, and knowing Giscard specifically, it's probably best to our modern sensibilities not to know the truth about how he so quickly subdued his duchy. I mean, Duke William of Normandy spent more than a decade trying to rule his duchy in its entirety. Duke Robert Giscard did it in a matter of weeks, and it was against a foreign empire to boot. As I said, Robert's return to Melfi in early to mid-May of 1061 was probably a return of high spirits and high hopes. No doubt, Robert Giscard felt victorious once again, and he was able to help out Roger's campaign much better, having been given reason to raid and plunder his own duchy and not get in trouble for it. As they prepared for the crossing, Palermitan blockade be damned, they received another shocking piece of news. In tandem with Palermo's efforts, Ibn al-Hawas, the strongest and most influential of Sicily's three largest emirs, sent his forces to bolster the city of Messina. Now, this could have been some culturally patriotic move to, you know, ensure the prosperity and safety of Muslims in Sicily. Or it could have been the fact that he hated his brother-in-law, Emir Ibn al-Timna, who was with the Normans at the time and wanted to capitalize on al-Timna's absence and win over Messina as his own. As we've said, Messina was a geographically and economically strategic powerhouse in in Sicily at the time, second only to Palermo. So, Ibn al-Hawas sent 800 Saracen warriors and 24 ships to Messina by May of 1061. To Robert Giscard, the writing was on the wall. It's never going to be an easier time to attack and take Messina than it was at that moment. The city already has a blockade provided by one emir, and another emir bolstered its defenses and naval forces by hundreds of men and tens of ships, we'll say. The longer the Normans waited, the harder it would become. And remember, Normans don't want to fight battles that they're fairly sure will end in failure. But Messina was the key to everything. As Roger thought about it, he no doubt realized this fact. Looking back to his February expedition that ended so poorly, he was very successful as he raided the countryside. The folks of Messina still fought on after the vast majority of their men were slaughtered, and his forces had to sail around Messina in order to get home, and when they did, they were met with a tiny naval fleet that harassed them all the way in. Norwich writes, quote, No expedition could succeed without securing its lines of communication with the mainland. This meant control of the straits which in turn involved the, pos- the possession of Messina. End quote. Okay, but how? A blockade, a strengthened garrison, extra ships in the harbor. Messina was pretty loaded at the time. 
Norman prospects were incredibly slim in May 1061. They had to effectively cross and disembark an army, though not terribly large to be honest, but large enough, of around 1,000 mounted knights and 1,000 unmounted knights and foot soldiers without the enemy pouncing on them. Such an undertaking was suicide at best. There was absolutely no chance of the Saracen forces allowing the disembarkation to occur without some sort of attack. Disembarkation wasn't a matter of just just running off of a boat. Think about it. This whole podcast began with the Battle of Malden in 991, and it was Olaf Tryggvason's forces who were stuck on a tiny little island, unable to disembark their ships on the mainland due to the Anglo-Saxon threat of attack before the process could be completed. Heck, it was even a death wish for our brave granddads and granduncles, great-uncles, whoever, and maybe for some of our listeners, their fathers, to land on Omaha Beach during World War II. And that was specifically designed to have had a thousand years of improvement on the disembarkation process. Disembarkation has always been a hurdle to attacking from the sea or moving troops safely into enemy territory. So what were the Normans to do? Norwich says, quote-unquote, the best chance lay in surprise. Malaterra quotes, or Malaterra writes, quote, he, that is Roger, gave his advice to the Duke that the latter should remain there with his army and show himself to the enemy. Meanwhile, he himself, with 150 knights, would go to Reggio, there board their ships under the cover of darkness, cross the sea while the enemy was unaware of their presence, and invade Sicily, end quote. Seems kind of similar to, the, to one of his, you know, former invasions, but let's see if it works. To Robert Guiscard's credit, Malaterra adds, quote, The Duke, who was afraid of losing his brother, refused to allow this, saying that he had no wish to gain anything from his brother's death, but rather placed his brother's life before all prospect of gain, end quote. Man, those Hopevilles, they are a complicated bunch of brothers, aren't they? The plan, however, went forward. Though Roger was given more men, now a force up to around 200 knights. Malaterra tells us that it was around the new moon that Roger snuck over with his men under the cover of absolute darkness, which science can add to this detail that it was sometime between May 18th and May 22nd, as May 20th, right in the middle, was the new moon then. So those four days must have been. They had to have been the times when Roger made the, made the crossing. This was the range that their nights were the darkest, right? New moon. So Roger would have known this and taken full advantage of it. It's quite smart. In 13 ships, Norwich tells us, he landed five miles south of Messina, a few hours into the early morning hours. Blockade patrols were monitoring the strait, but they didn't go as far south as Roger had. This added up to 10 more miles to their overseas journey and a couple extra miles from the city. But it turned out to be a perfectly designed plan. Roger immediately sent the ships back to where they left so that they could bring more soldiers across. This would take hours and hours, of course, as they didn't want to rush and get caught. So Roger and his 200 men were on their own, cut off entirely from the safety of home. But this is where it gets interesting. At dawn, Knowing they were out on the open 
on the beaches, Roger ordered everyone to sneak inland just a bit. At the same time, across the strait back in Regio, inside of the Palermitan blockade, Duke Robert Guiscard began loading up his men and supplies and horses en masse in Regio Harbor. He wanted the Saracen Navy to see what he was doing, to get a count as to how big the invasion force was going to be. Reports began coming in that the blockade began concentrating their forces closer to Regio within hours. This was exactly what the southern return forces needed to hear. Loading up, they began their two- or three-hour journey across the strait around noon. Back in Sicily, as Roger was moving up the beach toward the cover of the grasses and trees, he noticed in the dawn's light, so we're back at dawn now, in the dawn's light he noticed a Saracen mule train working its way up the dirt road toward Messina. Now, scouting it out for a few minutes, he realized that it was quite lightly defended. He also had no way of knowing if someone had seen them. So, if it was heading toward Messina, and they had seen Roger's forces sneaking around, then the entire plan would be foiled, and they would most likely be slaughtered on the spot in the coming hour or two. The only option Roger saw was to attack the mule train. And that's what they did. And they found a mule train loaded with gold and weapons and supplies, no doubt meant to replenish the Messina garrisons. Norwich calls it a quote-unquote providential opportunity. Roger slaughtered every single Saracen, stole the contents of the train, and hid the evidence. And by the time they were undercover once again, Norwich says, quote, a flurry of white sails off the coast announced the arrival of the next section of the invading army. End quote. Roger, laden with booty and supplies, loaded up all that which was unnecessary to their immediate mission and sent the ships back to Calabria. In exchange, the ships offloaded another 300 or so knights, along with their weapons, food, and horses. Now, that's the second time I've mentioned the loading up of horses. And I want to stop for just a moment and add something of, of, I think, value to our understanding of 11th century warfare. Now, horses were vital, as we know, to the Norman war machine. By now, we understand, we understand this quite well. But Norwich pointed out something that it, it just seems so obvious, but I hadn't thought of it before. So I want to share it. It was yet another thing I just took for granted all these years. See, Roger needed horses in his Norman army because horses were the one main component to the mobility and the effectiveness of the Norman war machine. But Normans were not necessarily a seafaring people. They had come from seafaring people, their ancestors being Vikings uh, from either Norway or Denmark or a mixture of both. Not quite sure as far as I can find, but that was over 200 years or so before this. They were quite fully landed soldiers now. The horse was their new boat. It allowed them lightning-fast access to every part of a battlefield, let alone quickened the movement of their armies considerably. William the Conqueror, in the future of this episode, used it to devastating effect in his many battles to subdue his own duchy, just as the Hopevilles and the thousands and thousands of Normans who traveled to southern Italy used it to subdue that region. But using the ocean was fairly new to them, as they ventured into Sicily. You don't simply walk a horse aboard a ship, uh, set sail, and then walk them off the ship at your destination. 
it didn't work like that. Horses are cautious, intelligent creatures, and many of them are fiercely loyal with their own unique personalities. Kind of like dogs. It's one of our favorite things about those two animals because those are very human-like qualities. So, just like us, if a horse doesn't understand why the ground beneath them is moving, you know, like on a boat, then it'll run the gamut of emotions, making it very difficult to control. So, how does one transport a horse then? Clearly, horses don't understand boats and whatnot. It turns out, (laughs) it's not a very straightforward task. See, first you had to consider the type of boat. Remember, this was the 11th century, but they did obviously have a few options. The Vikings nailed river travel with the flat-bottomed boat, but these boats could also make the landing and unloading of horses much easier, as the incline of ramp wouldn't be there to possibly throw the horse off. But if you wanted to carry many horses at a time, such as for an invasionary fleet, then a bigger boat would be necessary, thus making ramps also necessary, which would involve training each horse to walk up and down a ramp over and over and over again. Now, throw in a ramp attached to a boat that is swaying with each wave and you have an altogether new challenge. Overcomable, but a challenge nonetheless. On that matter, years, and and hear me on this, I've read it's years of training your horse had to happen for a smooth boat transport. Having overcome the fear of a swaying boat, you couldn't just let your horse roam the deck, especially on those smaller boats. And let's be honest, comparatively speaking, boats in the 11th century were nothing like they were even two centuries ahead of this. So, three things were required once the horse was led safely aboard. First, you had to secure the horse to a strong enough part of the ship. This was no straightforward matter either. You couldn't tie one horse, let alone numerous horses, to a pole or beam that could easily break should the powerful beast get spooked or panicked, which certainly happened from time to time. Second, every square inch the horse took up was a square inch that couldn't hold a human or supplies. And finally, boats work by distributing weight evenly. Simply riding on my uncle's pontoon around a local lake here Heading Before heading out, he just always quickly made sure that everyone was sitting in a seat that doesn't have the boat leaning in one direction too much. He has us sitting in a general area. You know, the same goes for the horses, and probably more so in the days of wooden boats, I would imagine. Now, considering all of that, to Norwich's point, he writes the following, quote, In an interesting article uh, titled, Combined Operations in Sicily, A.D. 1060, to 1078, D.P. Wally suggests that Normans had learned the art of transporting horses across the sea from the Byzantines, end quote. Now, what he's referring to here is the campaigns of George Maniakis back in the late 1030s and early 1040s, back when William and Drogo de Hauteville, along with thousands of other Norman knights, participated in the Byzantine effort to take back Sicily after 200 years of Muslim occupation. All of those Normans, let alone the Byzantine cavalry and whatnot, needed their horses to wage the war they wanted to wage. The Eastern Romans knew how to transport horses quite well. In fact, they'd been doing it fairly consistently for centuries. So that's most likely where Normans learned the tricks of moving their horses across water. Norwich continues, quote, 
and that the experience gained in 1061 proved of value five years later at Hastings, where it is known that Duke William's invasion force included knights from South Italy and Sicily, end quote. Man, it's, it's moments like this that remind me why I decided to take on such a daunting task here of attempting to tell not just one nation's story, but the, I'm trying the whole story, you know, of the late Middle Ages. I love those other podcasts and books that seek to explain one nation's story. Don't misunderstand me on that. In fact, I sometimes heavily rely on them. Those folks do great work, and I listen, I, I listen regularly to many of them, but to see how history isn't compartmentalized is where I find the most value. I never thought to question how William's men knew the best way to transport their massive numbers of horses, you know, across the rather moody English Channel. But it turns out that there is ample evidence to support the idea that Normans in early 1066, having heard of the opportunity about to happen up north with their with their ancestral lands Duke, you know, Duke William, and and what's happening in England, well, they traveled with this knowledge and they imparted it to Duke William and his builders and generals and soldiers and squires and all the rest, everybody involved. It also begs the question whether Duke William's invasion would have been as successful or successful at all had his fellow Normans not followed Duke Robert Guiscard and his little brother Roger into Sicily five years earlier. But I suppose that's an entirely different discussion. I found it all incredibly interesting, and I hope you did too, the part about the horses here. But let's get back to Roger sneaking into Sicily again in May of 1061. With stolen goods and money, headed back home, and up to 300 knights at his command, and with absolutely no indication that the people of Messina had any idea of his landing, Roger snuck up the coast toward Messina, and by the time the sun had risen completely in the sky, he found himself just outside the walls. Like physically, outside the walls, he walked right up, apparently. Now, remarkably, Roger still had no sign whatsoever that they'd been found out. He had 300 men, and remember, Ibn al-Hawas had sent 800 warriors to Messina already. They were inside the, the very walls that he's on the outside of. Had anyone caught wind of a possible invasion, Roger would have been over, overrun and murdered by now, no doubt. And yet, there he was, by mid-morning, waiting outside the gates, you could say, for his brother to arrive with the other 1,500 soldiers. But he knew that Robert was dealing with an entire blockade, a blockade that looked as fierce as it was in reality. Who knew when Robert could break through? It's said that Roger looked up at the city's walls. He remembered them well. He was about to attack them months earlier, uh, about a month earlier, when those ramparts were lined with women and children and the elderly poised to defend their city. However, that morning, as the sun rose higher in the sky, the city's walls were barren and they were silent. The city had woken up, but no one was manning the ramparts. And again, Roger had absolutely no way of knowing when Robert, when Robert would show up. So Roger did what Roger was wont to do. Roger attacked the city of Messina with only 300 men. Both Malaterra and Norwich agree how it went down. Malaterra wrote, quote, Finding it unguarded, for he had already destroyed the defenders, he captured the city and demolished its towers and ramparts, end quote. On the other side of it, Norwich writes, quote, It was 
over almost as soon as it began. Long before the Duke of Apulia had sailed with the bulk of his army, the city of Messina was in Norman hands. The Saracens had fallen victim to their own caution. In their anxiety to block the Normans' passage across the straits, they had left not only the southern approaches to Messina, but even the city itself undefended. End quote. Those men that Ibn al-Hawas sent to man the walls, well, once inside the walls, were ordered to patrol the coast instead of the walls. The moment they found out what happened, they didn't head in to fight the Normans. They knew that meant certain death. Instead, those 800 men, or the vast majority of them, they fled back home toward Enna. As for the Palermitan blockade, when word spread around the harbor, they too realized that they were protecting nothing at this point, and to engage the Normans trying to cross would just be foolish. It'd be, there's nothing to protect. Why waste your, your naval blockade? Well, they sailed back to Palermo, leaving Messina in the hands of Count Roger of Reggio. It must have been quite a sight for Duke Robert, <laughs> i got to say that, still trying to figure out how he was going to cross the strait. must have been quite a sight to see the entire Palermitan blockade just turn around and sail away. He quickly pushed out and was across the harbor within the hour, only to find his brother waiting for him inside the city. It was an incredible turn of fortune for Normans across the south. And it would set a high, high benchmark for Normans everywhere. A benchmark, as mentioned earlier, would be eclipsed, however, in just a few short years way up north. But a high benchmark it was. But Roger didn't just waltz in. Well, I mean, he did. He, he did just walk right in, essentially. But the people of Messina didn't simply hide in their homes without consequence. Malatari gives us a striking clue as to how the Normans operated during their conquests of the 11th century, their operations being pretty ubiquitous wherever they went, mind you. Malatari, this might be kind of hard for some, but Malatari wrote, quote, Those whom they found there were killed, though some fled to the Palermitan ships. Among those who fled from Messina was a certain young man from among the more noble citizens of the town who had a most beautiful sister. He tried to take her with him as he fled, but the girl was a dainty and delicate young thing, lacking in energy, and what with fear and the unaccustomed pace began to flag. Her brother tried gently to encourage her to continue her flight, but with no success. So, seeing her strength failing and not wishing to leave her to the Normans for one of them to rape, he drew his sword and killed her. Although he shed tears for his beloved sister, for she was his only one, he preferred to be his sister's slayer and to mourn her death, rather than that she should involuntarily contravene her own Islamic law and be defiled against her will by someone from another law. End quote. Here it is, folks, written 900 years ago, an account of the real human tragedy that almost inevitably occurs when we allow these quote-unquote great men and great women of history to rule over us with impunity. We'll stop it on that for this episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time.